Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here this week, joined by our head researcher, Desdemona Howard. Des, how's it going? Hi. It's going great. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So excited to have you on the show. So Marie decided that she would rather go to Texas for her real job than hang out and talk about demons for her fake job. So you're telling me she's in my state, but I'm recording. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Texas is so huge that I don't even know what part, like, I have absolutely no concept of where in Texas she is. I know there's part of Texas that's, like, directly south of me. It's very confusing. Oh, it's very confusing, Des. It is very confusing. (laughs) This episode, we're talking about demons, and this is a really good time for you to come on the show because you have been producing and uh, co-starring in a podcast called Calling Darkness with five other wonderful lady podcasters. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the show? All right. So I'm just going to read kind of our synopsis to give everybody an idea about what it's about. So six women, one book, kind of summon a demon from hell. Um, it's an audio drama about six um, actresses who were at a uh, acting seminar and, you know, we have to deal with the consequences of accidentally summoning a demon. It's a little, um, well, it's a lot of horror, a little bit of comedy, um, and it's written by two pretty well-known um, authors from the No Sleep community, S.H. Cooper and Gemma Amore. And we have, you know, there are the six women, but we do have, you know, some other characters that will be appearing in there and we'll learn more about those soon. Good stuff. Oh, it's super exciting. Yeah, it's really good. I really enjoy it so far. A lot of things going on here in the Mad Scientist podcast world. And uh, Des, we're so proud that you're doing your own podcast. We're so happy. It's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun, too. (laughs) Even with six people, it's a lot of work. But yeah, you guys can hear... um, We've got a teaser up there, and we're starting to release some voicemails from our six women, so. Yeah, so, okay, so those aren't even full episodes yet, huh? They're just the voicemails? Is that what you're just calling them? Yes, so they're just, like, little teasers to get to know who these characters are that, and why, you know, how they end up together. Okay, so I wasn't sure, because I've listened to the voicemail, and I wasn't sure if it was, like, is that the episode? You know what I mean? Like... It's getting there. It's good stuff. I'm excited. So yeah, we have two. Uh, we have two uh, voicemails out now. So obviously, we have four more voicemails to come, um, uh-huh. and then there will be more voicemails in like that same format. Um, but they'll be part of our Patreon. Ooh, very cool. Okay, well that's super exciting. So go check it out, guys. It's callingdarknesspodcast.libsyn.com. You can also just Google Calling Darkness Podcast and it will show up. That's what I did. And uh, it's it's going to be great. I'm super excited for it. And go check out the teaser. Check out the voicemails that are out there already. Um, so there's one from there's one from Annabelle Crow and then one from Bridget Milson. Yes, and I'm Annabelle. Oh, my God. Go check it out, listeners. Okay, let's get into this episode, Des. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, so demons. What? 
so, so far we have talked about kind of the history of demons. We've talked about their general lore and we have talked about, you know, basically how we've gotten to the modern day view of demons in our own kind of view. So, uh, really the story of modern day demonology is intrinsically linked with the story of demonology through the Roman Catholic church and the understanding of demonology in kind of, at least in the West, in the Christian, uh, the Christian tradition and the Christian denominations that exist. So you have movies like the exorcist, uh, you know, the exorcism of, uh, what was that movie called? Emily Rose. Emily Rose. Yeah. That's the one I'm thinking of. Uh, you've show, you know, movies like, uh, the witch, which is super good. And I just found out it was actually directed or, or, uh, created by someone who, was from uh, Durham, New Hampshire, which is where I went to school. So that's very cool. Nice. And this this idea generally is that, so you have a demon that will infest someone, right? And then a priest or a holy person of some description will come in and actually cure them of their demonness, Right. So to speak. And what's what's interesting is that a lot of people think of exorcism as kind of an old school view, right? That it's not a, uh, what's the word? That it's not really a thing that the church talks about anymore. Yeah. But that's actually not true. So uh, the church or the Roman Catholic church, at least, re- relatively recently reformatted their uh, exorcism guide. Now, the guide is called Exorcisms and Certain Supplications um, also known as the Roman ritual. The English translation was just put out in 2013. I mean, just put out like five years ago. Oh yeah. But, I was looking um, up that this morning. <laughs> yeah. Now this came about due to what's known as the second Vatican council. So a full title of that is the second ecumenical council of the Vatican. Um, also known commonly as Vatican two. And what it, what it basically was, was uh, Pope John the 23rd, in uh, 1962 decided that we were going to make the church's documentation, the church's practices, everything more, uh, more modern basically. Right. And so this is when, uh, if you have, if you grew up in a Catholic household, like I did, you know, um, even in the nineties started, you know, things were going through there that were changes that had kind of been implemented in other places and then were slowly being implemented in America. So things like the prayers changing their wording, right? Or even the method of the, of the mass itself changing around in some interesting ways. So um, the general idea here, this is a quote from Pope Benedict, the, uh, the 16th said, quote, the Paschal mystery as the center of what is to be Christian and therefore of the Christian life, the Christian year, the Christian seasons. So it's this idea about basically changing around the way that the church talks about the redemption story of Jesus Christ as they understand it. And then how that redemption story gets told to the general public. Okay. And an interesting part of that is the story of exorcism. Now the initial guidelines on exorcism were first established in 1614. You know, just a little while ago. <laughs> right. So a, a long, you know, quite a bit of while, quite a bit ago. And the the reason that they were even given a sort of specific 
guideline or guidance was that before that time, before the 1600s, anyone who was a Catholic was thought to be capable of performing an exorcism because it was a power that Jesus specifically said was given to those who believed in the Holy Spirit and had the Holy Spirit within them. So technically, if you have been confirmed in the Catholic Church, at least according to the Bible, um, you can perform exorcisms. So because I wasn't raised Catholic, you can, but I can't. <laughs> exactly. Which is hilarious because I just love to sin. Now, the whole thing is that uh, the whole thing here is that you can you can perform an exorcism as a member, like a layperson, Right. But the whole the, the thing that the church says is that you can't even though you could perform an exorcism, it will not work or it will not have the same effect as if a priest did. The reasoning here is that part of the exorcism practice itself is almost testing your metal against the demon. So the demon is, is, you know, this, this embodiment of sin or this specific idea of kind of rebellion and whatever. And so what is the biggest counteraction to rebellion? It is obedience and specifically obedience to the Catholic church. So in the, in at least in the explanation that the Roman Catholic church gives anyone with faith can't perform exorcisms because even if you do, the demon basically will just be like, well, who are you to tell me to get out of here? Like you don't even go to church every week or you don't even practice what you preach or you don't even have the knowledge or study. You haven't devoted your life in the same way that say a priest would. But that brings some interesting questions because there are, there are priests or there are, there are, uh, you know, I guess not clergymen necessarily, but there are religious figures that are not Roman Catholic, even within the Christian tradition. So what, what's up with them? Can they perform exorcisms? <laughs> wow yeah right like it's kind of an interesting thing so or is their exorcism like on par with like the lay person maybe because they just have faith but they haven't obeyed the catholic traditions i think that that is the general idea right is that um you can't you, you can't just do one right and then on top of that, too, even within the second, even within the right here that's that's written. So there's an official document. Um, even within within this, they say the priests themselves should fast for the week before the exorcism should spend the time praying and devoting themselves to the church, because it really is like a it's a it's a very solemn, important ceremony for them. Right. It's not something that just anyone can do, at least is the idea. So it's it's very interesting. Now, this is from, uh, this is section 16 of that uh, Roman ritual. So I'm just going to read the quote here. Quote, an exorcist, therefore, should not proceed to celebrate an exorcism unless he has ascertained with moral certitude that the one to be exorcised is really possessed by a demon. And if it is possible, celebrate it with the consent of that person. According to established practice, the following are considered as signs of being possessed by demons, speaking a number of words in an unknown language or understanding someone speaking, making known distant and hidden events, showing strength beyond the nature of the individual's age or condition. Such signs can offer some indication. Since, however, signs of this kind are not necessarily to be reckoned as coming from the devil, 
It is also necessary to pay attention to other things, especially those of the moral and spiritual order, which in another way manifest diabolical intervention, as, for example, vehement aversion from God, the most holy name of Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints, the church, the word of God, sacred things and rites, especially sacramental ones, and from sacred images. And finally, sometimes the relation of all the signs to faith and to spiritual combat in the Christian life must be carefully weighed, since the evil one, first of all, is the enemy of God and of everything that unites the faithful together with a salvific action of God, end quote. So it's interesting because they have this kind of the, the actual practice of getting an exorcism, right? So a, a priest that just does an exorcism on their own is again doing it under the auspices of rebellion, right? They are actually, they're performing the major sin that Satan did to get cast out of heaven, right? Is they're questioning the authority of those above them. So they specifically state in here that if, uh, besides those those things there, they make mention that you have to get the okay of the church above you. So it's kind of why I think those stories of, say, Ed and Lorraine Warren are so interesting and kind of funny, because in many of those stories, they're, they're shown as being almost heroes because they go to the church. The church says, no, this isn't a real exorcism. Don't do it. And they're like, screw you. I know better. And it's like, that is pride, man. You are definitely not doing the right thing. <laughs> And all those um, priests that are like on TV shows. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. It's 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 really interesting. Now, another important thing that they say here is section 19. They say, quote, the exorcism should be performed in such a way that it manifests the faith of the church and that no one can consider it as a magical or superstitious activity. Care must be taken that it is not became a spectacle for those present. In no way may any opportunity be given to any of the media of social communication while the exorcism is taking place or even before the exorcism takes place. And when it has been performed, the exorcist and those present observing due discretion should not divulge information about it. End quote. So like Ed and Lorraine Warren canceled, just canceled, <laughs> right? Like, I think ridiculous. they shredded that page. No, they just didn't even worry about it, right? They're like, oops, that wasn't part of this. Now, what's what's really interesting here is that the right itself is pretty is actually surprisingly boring. I mean, not boring, but like here here is the general way that the right is supposed to go. OK, um, so. First off, they sprinkle holy water okay. and it's supposed to be a memorial of baptism because baptism is actually considered to be the first exorcism like when you're baptized, it is technically an exorcism of sin, right? It's an exorcism of the evil of birth, the, the original sin of Mary and inviting the Holy Spirit in. Okay. So they actually consider that to be a form of lesser exorcism in some way. Okay. So they say uh, you do the sign of the Holy Cross. You uh, place hands on the person. Uh, you can also do what's known as the, as the breathing, the holy breathing. This is again from the Bible, this idea that, uh, you, you know, you can say, Lord, you know, uh, remove the demon from this person who I breathe on. And it's supposedly supposed to be like ice breath, I guess, for the demon. <laughs> Not really super clear. Um, but so, okay. They sprinkle the holy water. Uh, they then actually do a prayer of the litany, which is just kind of a prayer that's within this thing itself. They then recite a Psalm or uh, ask for God to actually provide 
protection over the person. Now, this is what's known as kind of the, uh, basically the part of the exorcism where you're asking God for help, right? There's two major parts of the exorcism, the part where you ask God for help. And then the second part where you, you demand that the demon or whoever leave with your blessed tic tac breath. Right. With your power, right. With the power of your wonderful breath. So, um, after the Psalms are said, they then do a, uh, uh, kind of a response, like a call back and forth, right? So when I say Jesus, you say Christ. <laughs> um, then the exorcists themselves will say a prayer. The gospel is then said that this is the presence of Christ, right? So this is what's really going on. Christ said this. And so it's Christ's power that is compelling you to leave this person. Um, you then put your hands on the person and you say, I command you to leave, right? This is the part where the breathing can happen. Then you say the, the Apostles' Creed. You can also say then the Lord's Prayer. Then, uh, again, you ask God to free the person from the devil. And then after that, the exorcism is basically done, um, at least the first part, and the exorcist will show them the sign of the cross. And the idea is that, again, you're showing that God, the priest, and the Holy Spirit, whatever, are not afraid of the demon, all that stuff. And then you get into what's known as the deprecative part of the exorcism. So the first part is more of like a, a imploring or kind of a asking God for help. The second part is where um, you are basically telling the demon to leave. So the deprecative part is where God is asked for help. And then the imperative part is where in the name of Christ, the demon is cast out. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Now, in, here's the thing. All of this is very, like, it's like jazz. They can pick and choose what parts to play. So some exorcists will decide to do the Psalms. Some won't. Some will use the deprecative part where they ask God for help as opposed to the imperative part where they tell the demon to leave. Like, it's kind of up to the individual exorcist, which is kind of, I think, a fascinating part of this. Which means if they're on TV, they're doing the part where they're, like telling them to leave because it's more showy. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Now, here's the thing they mentioned here specifically. So this is section 28 quote. Finally, he says a deprecative formula by which God is petitioned as well as an imperative formula by which the devil in the name of Christ is directly adjured to withdraw from the troubled person. The imperative formula is not to be used unless preceded by the deprecative formula, but the deprecative formula may also be used without the imperative one. So you can ask God to help this person, but you under no circumstances are supposed to just tell the demon to leave without asking God for help first. Okay. Interesting. I don't really, I, I kind of don't, I guess I understand that, but it's just a weird, it seems to me a very specific kind of thing to be said. Um, and so now they say that after that, they can just continue those steps over and over again and do other things until basically they think the exorcism is done. Um, and then once that's finished, they say a prayer of thanksgiving and a blessing, and then that's it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, like, this list, like, that you went through that was, like, this is, you know, the things that you have to show in order to need an exorcism. Like, they don't have, like, a list for, like, this is done. <laughs> no, not really. It's interesting, right? There is no, like, it's well, like, so. Just at your discretion, like, ah, oh, yeah, you look like you're good now. Well, so in, in my in my readings, right, what they said was the general idea is if they are able to 
if so one thing that they do do a lot is ask the person proclaim that God is like the king of the universe or proclaim that God, you know, proclaim God's goodness. And if they still have a demon in them, they will not be able to do that. That's the, that's the kind of the, the sign for them that makes it work. But they even say in here that they even say in here that you have to be careful because one of the major aspects of a demon is trickery. So they're like, they might make it seem like everything is good, but you, you always have to do that double check of say, Jesus is cool. And if they can't say it, there's, they still got a demon. I feel like they rely on this, this trick or this, like, let's just ask you to say something that you wouldn't say a lot. Because I think in one of the other episodes, you guys discussed how they like basically said the, did the same trick with determining whether or not the demon was a demon or an angel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the, it's, it's this weird idea that if you can, if you invoke the name of God, the demon will be compelled to say, tell the truth because, or they will be forced to eventually tell the truth because the whole basis of this idea. So they actually say this here in the very beginning. So they say, um, let me just get over to this section quick. So this is from section 10 of the right quote. The mystery of divine loving kindness, however, becomes more difficult for us to understand when with God's permission, Sometimes there occur cases of particular torment or possession on the part of the devil of some human being who is a member of the people of God and has been enlightened by Christ so as to walk as a child of light towards eternal life. Then the mystery of iniquity, which is at work in the world, clearly manifests itself. And that means that the mystery of evil, basically, even though the devil is unable to cross over the limits imposed by God, this form of the devil's power over a human being differs from that in man which derives from original sin, which is sin. When such things occur, the church implores Christ the Lord and Savior and relying on his strength offers to the member of the faithful who is tormented or possessed a number of helps so that he or she may be freed from torment or possession. End quote. So basically what they say is it's, it's, it's a, they basically admit here that this is weird, right? Like it's weird that demons can even do this if we believe in God. Right. Right. And what they say though, here is another one quote from the earliest traditions of the church preserved without interruption. The journey of Christian initiation is so arranged that the spiritual struggle against the power of the devil is clearly signified. And in fact, begins exorcisms to be carried out in a simple form over the elect during the time of the catechumenate. That is the minor exorcisms are prayers of the church that the elect instructed about the mystery of Christ who delivers from sin may be set free from the effects of sin and from the influence of the devil may be strengthened in their spiritual journey and may open their hearts to receive the gifts of the, of the savior. Now what they are basically saying there, and they say it a couple times too, is that in the devil goes for people who are particularly going to be particularly important to God. And so it's like the story of Job, where if the devil has possessed you, it is because God thinks that you can overcome it and prove to the devil how powerful your spiritualism is. Right. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a double edged sword here where the same thing they say that God wanted you to become God may not like that you are being possessed, but God knew it would happen. 
right? Or God knows you can overcome it, or there's some reason for it to occur. And so therefore, you know, so the, the whole point here is that the devil is not really a separate operative with powers over God, right? The devil can't, can never beat God in this story. Right. I guess it's kind of the answer here, which is interesting. Again, it's kind of like a, okay. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, I think it's very interesting. So, like, you're not going to win anyway, so we can just have this arbitrary rule where if we ask you the right question, you you can't lie to that question. You can lie to everything else, though. Basically, yes. It's inter- it's it's so weird, right? So, um, and here's I, I don't want to read the whole thing, but so this is. This is a little bit of the imperative formula, so this is the part that they say to cast the demon out of the person. So, quote. I charge you, Satan, deceiver of the human race, acknowledge the spirit of truth and grace who repels your attacks and confounds your lies. Go out from, you know, the name of the person, this creature of God, who he has assigned with a seal from on high. Depart from this man or woman whom God, by spiritual anointing, has made a holy temple. That's the kind of verb like it's not it's never like, you know, the power of Christ compels you, right? (laughs) Like, that's ridiculous. It is a very, I mean, again, there are, there are parts of this that are kind of, you know, back and forth, like, okay, this is true. This can happen, this, whatever. But uh, the basic idea here is that they can, it's, it's a, it's a, it's like a thing that the exorcist does every other day. Right. It's not as dramatic uh, in real life. (laughs) No. And actually one of the books that I read for this Uh, for this series was the right, which is a very, very good book on exorcism. If you're interested, um, the, uh, was not a good movie, but it is a pretty good book. Um, so, uh, the book is called the right, the making of a modern exorcist. It is by Matt Baglio or Baglio. Um, it's, it's pretty good. It's a little, it's a little dry, I guess in some sections, but it's pretty interesting. If you're like, me who are are into, you know, religious mysticism and things, but, uh, they even mention priests that are within the Vatican who seriously do exorcisms every day from morning until night, right? The percentage of people who are thought to be possessed by demons in recent times has actually gone up pretty significantly. Interesting. And so, uh, in, in particular, it's gone up a lot in, um, it's gone up in Italy, right? Which I mean, kind of makes sense, right? But, uh, but it's very interesting how, just how much it has gone up, right? And kind of the, the level of need. Um, so, uh, the, this is a, this is from uh, yougov.uk, an opinion, opinion poll beliefs about the devil in possession. So, uh, this is, do you, the question was, do you personally believe in the existence of the devil or not? In the United States, 57% said yes, and uh, 28% said no. 15% saying I don't know. In the United Kingdom, 65% said no, 18% said yes, 17% said I don't know. Um, Do you believe someone can be possessed by the devil or some other evil spirit? United States, 51% said yes, 28% said no, 20% said I don't know. UK, only 18% said yes, 65% said no. 17% 17% said, I don't know. Uh, this is, again, uh, another one of these questions from YouGov.uk, 2013 poll. How often, if at all, 
do you think people are possessed by the devil? So this is the United States. 6% said very frequently. 9% said frequently. 29% said occasionally. 41% said rarely. 11% said never. And 4% said they don't know. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. United Kingdom, 41% said don't know, and only 3% each for very frequently, frequently, 13% for occasionally, and 33% for rarely. This, this correlation is really strange because, like, if I'm understanding what you said initially, like, the UK actually has more people that believe in this, but less that believe that, like, actual possession can happen. So that, no, so that you... The U.S. has more people that believe in it. Okay. But what's interesting is they, they, the percentages are actually pretty close, I would say. What's interesting to me is actually the difference in how many people said I don't know in the U.K. versus the U.S., right? Like 41% said they don't know in the U.K., which is probably the, probably the answer that is correct, right? right? Like how many people know, you know what I mean? Like. Can't have definitive proof of anything, so no, I don't know it's a great the, option. You're right. The only answer is I don't know. Um, so now a lot of this to our listeners probably seems kind of silly, right? You have all of this build up here. You have all these ideas, whatever. What is it really? You know, like what is what is it really doing for us? Like, what are there cases where this might actually happen? Obviously, in the public mindset, I mean, as that poll showed, it's a pretty common belief in the United States to think that demons exist. And not only do they exist, but that they they at least sometimes possess people. Why do we believe that? Well, one of the reasons is because of stories like that of Michael Taylor. Michael Taylor is uh, a known exorcism case that became very, very intense in the 1970s. So uh, this actually happened in England. It's known as the Osset murder case. So uh, Michael Taylor lived with his wife and their kids uh, in West Yorkshire, Osset. He was a butcher. His wife decided that they should become more, I guess, spiritual and uh, joined a what's, what's known as a Christian fellowship group which basically like is kind of a similar to like Bible study kind of things in the United States. There's some, there's some interesting stuff that says maybe this is more like a cult or something, but as far as we know, it was just kind of a study group kind of that's thing. That's what it, yeah, that's what it kind of appeared to me in the research was just like a Bible study. Yeah. Now, during this period, Michael started to really get into this and his wife, Marie, became, or sorry, not his wife, Marie, his, his wife became concerned that he and the leader of the group, a woman named Marie Robinson, were basically cheating. He was cheating on the wife with Marie. Mm-hmm. Um, when this was brought up at one of these study sessions, Michael himself said that 
Uh, he believed that it was because of a powerful evil within him in some way. And uh, eventually this would lead to them getting into fights with each other, verbal fights, screaming matches kind of things. Now, uh, what's interesting here is they actually talk about how uh, they talk about how these they would speak to each other in tongues during the meetings. Um, and when the tongue speaking started to occur, that was when the wife, Christine, said, I'm thinking maybe there something else is going on here with the, between these two. I think something evil is going on here. Um, and then uh, this this guy, Michael Taylor, would explain, quote, uh, it, so this is from uh, Raising the Devil, Satanism, New Religions, and the Media by Bill Ellis, quote, Christine Taylor expressed suspicions at one meeting that his relationship with Robinson was more carnal than it first seemed. Suddenly, Taylor later explained, it appeared that he and Robinson were both naked. I felt evil within me, he said. I fought it, but it overcame me. I had sought knowledge of myself and my being on earth, and she tried to give it to me, but this is not the way. The result was a series of violent encounters. Taylor first physically attacked Robinson in a kind of charismatic rage. I did not know what to say, she recalled. I started speaking in a tongue. Mike also screamed at me in a tongue. We just screamed at each other. Physically restrained, Taylor was calmed down, and he received absolution at the next meeting of the group. So this is going on. Kind of weird, right? This guy's like, you know, blah, 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 right. whatever. I don't like, know with this lady. you've ever actually, like, been in the room with people when they're speaking in tongues. But, oh, my God, is, like, even without the hostility of this situation it's a pretty scary experience you've been in the room when that happened oh my so goodness i grew up um i guess i instead you know you were raised in a catholic church i was raised with a grandfather who was a non-denominational preacher oh boy okay so um either whenever we were at his which he had like the i guess classic rural american church in his house mm -hmm. and then we also had like a church in town that we went to that was also non-denominational and i mean from early childhood all the way through like my teenage years um i mean that was a regular occasion at church god um and so it was like i guess the non-denominational that we uh practiced whenever i was a kid was a little like closest probably to pentecostal uh. but without all the restrictions <laughs> wow that's super interesting and it, it is i mean i think even now it would be scary but i know it was terrifying as a child to like just see people doing that and i yeah <laughs> wow don't have words to describe how unsettling it feels <laughs> so i have never like i have never i mean again Growing up Catholic, it was like people that spoke in tongues, you were like, those people need mental health. And I mean, this is my own right? family as well. Not like just like right, the congregation, even... but like this is my grandfather. I've seen my parent. like my dad was um, a minister in, in our little group of whatever, whenever I was small, like him and my brothers were certified or whatever for a little while. But my grandfather was my whole life. Wow, that's that's super fascinating. Jeez, man. OK, well, Des, 
we got a lot to talk about after this. <laughs> so, um, okay. So th- they're speaking in tongues, right? They're yelling at each other almost to the point of a physical confrontation. Uh, at the next meeting, they, they, they pray over him, basically they give him a blessing, but his behavior gets weirder and weirder, right? He's um, just kind of just being weird. Right, just acting aggressive, talking to himself, kind of stuff like that, whatever. They then decide, because he's acting so strangely, that they're gonna perform an exorcism. So they bring in the uh they bring in a uh a vicar, right? Which is a, ch- a priest in the Anglican church. Uh they decide on the night of uh, the fifth of October, it ends up going to the sixth of October, it ends up going all night in uh, October of 1974. And they do it in St. Thomas's church, um, which is uh, performed by the head church there, Father Peter Vincent, um, and then uh, Methodist clergyman, the Reverend Raymond Smith. They believed that they had cast out at that point over 40 demons, right? Demons of, they said demons of, uh, this is a quote here, a demon of incest, demons of bestiality, blasphemy, and demons of lewdness. Now, I don't know what a demon of lewdness is. Is that like a George Carlin kind of thing? You know, where like a, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a, I don't know, a demon in a trench coat. Like, Just hey. making dirty jokes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand it, right? But uh, the other ones seem terrible. So, I mean, blasphemy, I guess, whatever. But, lewd, you know, bestiality, incest, not good stuff. Um... <laughs> They then decide that they're tired. The priests are tired. It is a, uh, I mean, the thing is too, we're saying that these, these things aren't as dramatic as they show up in the films and things. They're not as dramatic. There's not like pea soup being shot out of someone's face and stuff like that. But there is someone, I mean, essentially just, you know, violently writhing around on the, on a bed or a table or something, kicking and screaming and whatever. You're constantly standing. You're constantly yelling back at them. You're praying, you're, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not a, uh, it can get very intense. And I imagine this was a very intense case. Uh, but interestingly, and this actually is, comes up again and again in the research at the end of that night's exorcism, they decide, okay, it didn't work that time or it, it worked. We cast out some of them, go home, rest, come back in a week. And again, that happens again and again, right? In in the right, actually they talk about how the priest who's the main the main priest of that story is surprised when that his first exorcism kind of with him being in training, the priest that's performing the exorcism stops to take a phone call in the middle of it. <laughs> like, I was good. You got some time. Right. I mean, he's kind of like, we're going to leave it as it is right now. I'm going to go, I'm going to do this phone call quick. I feel like, like it should be taken. In, like if this is real and like, this is so intense and you're trying to save this person's life, like, should be treated like surgery. Like, nope, sorry. I'm in the middle of surgery right now. You know? Right. I'm in the right, middle like, of an exorcism. This person's going to like, you know, lose their mind yeah. if I don't finish. It's, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> now, uh, they said though, that they thought there were still three demons in particular left in him, a demon of insanity, a demon of murder and a demon of violence. Probably not. They probably could have left the demon of lewdness. 
right? <laughs> I would think you would pick, you know, on the totem pole of demons to get rid of, I would say insanity, murder, and violence. Those are the top three me. I mean, definitely murder. Right? Like, you gotta get murder out of there. You can keep lewdness. You can keep the demon of, I don't know, rooting for the Red Sox. Like, but you can't keep the demon of murder in there. They leave them. They, I mean, and the thing is, too, we're talking like they have any control over this. They think that they're, they just say, we think there are these three left. We did our best. We're going to have to come back to it. Right? Come back. He, you can get some more surgery next week. Right. So he goes. And that day, uh, later on that day, I should say, Michael Taylor is found in the street near his home, naked, shouting, covered in blood. His wife, Christine had been killed by him with his bare hands. He ripped out her eyes and her tongue and uh, essentially almost tore her face off. He also strangled their poodle. Don't know why, but he strangled her poodle, their poodle. And uh, they brought him in, right? They, They just brought him in. Now, they, he got off here, not really got off, he was acquitted of his crime based on the grounds of insanity. Because that, that insanity demon was still there. I guess so. <laughs> um, he spent some time in Broadmoor Hospital, which is a, uh, a basically a, like a mental health facility for criminals and, and just a high security psychiatric facility. Not necessarily right. just for criminals, but it is high security so they can pe- keep people there who are um, too violent to be out in the world. Um, he was then basically just in prison, right? He, he was in Broadmoor and then spent more times in another, uh, another secure ward. And then he was, uh, he was released. Um, now, why he was released, or where, while he was released, let's say, um, he was actually brought back in on a, on a, what's the word? Charges of sexual assault. Charges that he had inappropriately touched a young girl. Um, and then he was uh, basically placed back into, um, back into psychiatric treatment at the time. He then was found again, July 2005, was found guilty of touching a teenage girl. Um, And this time, while he was in prison, he again started to show some of his uh, more, I guess, sort of demoniacal uh, symptoms. He he attempted suicide a couple of times. He, again, was getting violent, getting strange, whatever. And then they, they ordered him back into psychiatric treatment. This case, when it came out, this is in 74, right? Mm -hmm. This case to many people proved the existence of demons. It was like, this is the, this is one of the cases that we think, right, is, was up there. This is one that we think really shows that these things happen, right? Yeah. It's uh, that one, along with the story of Annalise Michelle, you know, is probably one of the more famous ones. And 
I don't I don't think it can be overstated how important that was culturally, right? To people who think that this this is a real event, right? This yeah. idea that a, a demon could take you over and then uh, cause you to kill, right? It it not just anybody like kill your own spouse, <laughs> right? Kill your wife. Um, it's and this is this is years before say David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, said that um you know a, a demon named sam told him to kill mm-hmm. right this is before uh, these kind of other stories are building up and whatever um and the idea that demons exist and can cause murders can cause people to do things they wouldn't normally do like this continues to the modern day but like you said you kind of grew up in i mean I, I assume that in your household the devil and demons were very real Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think I think talked about this like a little bit in um, when I was on the double de- density episode mm-hmm. um, where <laughs> we we called that episode a ghost positive household because it was very, um, very much just accepted that like spirits, ghosts, anything spiritual was a thing, like whatever it just existed. And um like, I remember, like, stories and stuff um, without, like, actually, like, telling my mother's own stories because, um, you know, they're hers. But sure. I remember her telling me a story of, like, thinking that she saw a demon one time. Oh, man. <laughs> like, and it was very strange, like, or I guess very satanic panicky in the sense that, like, we we're going through a rough patch in our family and she visited a new church. Okay. Um, and she saw it there. So we never went back. Oh, wow. Um, and like she had these, like, I guess not necessarily like visions or whatever regularly, but she let, those things those you know dreams or whatever they were like guide her a lot whenever we were going through this point so i said my dad's dad was a non-denominational preacher um and i mean it saved him from alcoholism like it's Mm -hmm. a very like clear story in his life where at one point he you know got into this version of christianity um, became very dedicated to it, became a, a pastor and, you know, never touched alcohol again. So it, it really did like change his life. Right. For the better. Uh, for the better. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. He, you know, was a wonderful person. Um, but that level of like, I guess that level of religion is pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, growing up, like going to his house, um, everything, every action, everything that you did was, you know, supposed to be for God. So I remember like being bored out of my mind, um, when I would have to stay the night because you were only allowed to watch the, like the Christian preacher channels and not like just whatever Joel Osteen or whatever, like the serious, like evangelical people. (laughs) Right, not even the stuff with the, like the rock music. No, like right? the like I'm gonna slap you in the forehead and you're saved kind of people. Wow. So would you? Was it like 
Would you say that was common like in your town or was that more like a family kind of thing? Um, it's a really small town, but it was still pretty like a pretty small group. Like his congregation was maybe 10 people. Okay. Um, and then we say as um, my actual immediate family, my mom, dad and brothers and stuff like we had a church that was like actually in the city that we went to that probably had a bigger congregation of like 50 or so. Sure. Um, but they definitely bought into the whole like 90s end times thing oh, that happened. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, so much so that I remember going like in middle school, one of those people that wrote, I can't remember the book, um, but you know, we had we had books on, you know, the end of the world <laughs> and the mark of the beast and all of that stuff in our house. And I remember my mom taking me and like a couple of my cousins and there was a speaker at like the middle school. <laughs> oh, wow. What? And I remember my cousins being like terrified that like, you know, they were going to go to hell or you know they were gonna get the mark of the beast and my mom like trying to console them uh um i mean of course like these memories are like from when i was a kid so like i i'm sure there's tons of things that i don't remember about the situations right but it was very much like a real thing and really terrifying um and then like during that rough patch, whenever my parents had split up for a little while, my mom went to that other church and then we kind of just stopped going all together. And like the version that I got of everything was like the reason why she went to the other church in the first place where she saw the demon <laughs> um, was because she had a dream that the church that we were at was basically a cult. Oh, wow. So in her dream, like, and she, I just remembered the scene that she dreamed. So she dreamed that um, everybody in the congregation was like sitting in a circle chanting. Uh huh. And like, that was obviously very unsettling. <laughs> um, and so she decided to go to another church. And then that's when she saw like this little tiny demon creature like run through the church. And wow. we left and like, we, Really, like, once my family got back together and stuff, like, we really never, ever had religion in our life again. Man, that's so... So, what's interesting is, so, when I was a kid, right, I was all... Like, I was not... Like, I don't think my, my mom wasn't particularly religious. I mean, she was religious, but not in the... My dad was... My dad was religious in a very specific way that is, like, particular to New York City guys, or New York City people generally, I think. Where, and maybe this is true of all big cities, I don't know, but, like, the church was kind of his place to hang out, almost. Mm -hmm. So, like, my dad was the, my dad was a preschool uh, teacher. He was a, like, the, the gym teacher, like, the recess guy that, maybe oh, a teacher. Nice. He was just the guy that would, like, help with research, recess at the church. And then he also helped by doing, like, um, he also helped by doing, you know, like, uh, building stuff and, you know, little odd jobs and whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we so spent a lot of time at the church, too. My mom was, like, the Sunday school teacher, and we had Girl Scouts, and we had our Girl Scout meetings at the church. Well, yeah, so, yeah, so, like, our Boy Scout was at the church. Mm -hmm. um, I was there as a kid, like, every day, 
with the priests hanging out and just like we played hockey with them, like, you know, like really just getting to know these people pretty well. And so when I was a kid, but my dad like was did not was not religious. Like my dad didn't read the Bible. My dad didn't stop sinning at all. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like not, like literally nothing changed. He could have been hanging out. We could have been hanging out at a sports store. You know what I mean? Or like a, a bar mm-hmm. or whatever. Like nothing would have changed about his behavior. Nothing would have changed about the, the kind of dynamic, except the people we were hanging out with were priests. They just had funny shirts on. Right. Um, and they didn't curse when they, when we played. So the, what was fascinating though, is when I was a kid, I was certain because I was like, well, we hang out with these people, all these people, priests, whatever, like it's gotta be true. All that stuff's gotta be true. Right. And the part that was fascinating to me was always the demon, the demons and devils and stuff, right? The evil kind of part of it, whatever. And as a kid, I was certain that I was like, I was like, I'm going to hell. Like, I'm going to get possessed by a demon. Like, it's going to happen. How do you stop yourself from being possessed? Yada, yada. Like, all that stuff was very scary to me and very real. And I just remember, like, thinking, like, isn't it? It's so weird that no one else in my town is taking this as seriously as I am. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, like I was like, this is this is real. <laughs> this can happen, you know? And like people, you know, friends were like, that's not real. And then my mom would be like, you know, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. Like, come on, come on. <laughs> exactly. You know, like it's so weird to me um, because like it's sh- I think it shows just how. Just how easy it is to fall into that kind of stuff where you think like your mom's dream about the cult thing, whatever that could very easily. I mean, I don't know. I don't know your mom. Right. But that's the kind of dream people have before they get into the satanic panic stuff where they're like, Oh my oh, yeah. God, we've been part of a cult this whole time. I guess so like, and I, I, I talked about this in an interview too, uh, for T public where like, I remember a very distinct point in my life where we were able to start celebrating Halloween. Oh, wow. So, and it's like, It's not really clear when, because I know I was, like, really young, but, like, I remember a point where it was like, no, we're not going to do that. And then all of a sudden, I had a tombstone for a birthday cake because my birthday's in November and we were going to celebrate it early. Um, And, like, now I I sent you a picture, like, just the other, like, September 15th or something where my mom's entire house is already yeah, done Halloween. Absolutely. But I remember like I never went trick or treating. And never went trick or treating until I was 14 and then I went with a friend. Oh, come on. someone owes you candy. Um, but it was like once we started, it was very much like within our household we were allowed to, but it was still like treated as like I'm not sure if this is safe. Uh-huh. And then I say at some point, like we just like she just stopped caring, <laughs> like at all. Yeah. But we definitely experienced the satanic panic in my household. <laughs> Man, that's so interesting. I mean, so did you ever hear stories in your town or of, of people or whatever of like possession or, you know, so-and-so thinks that they've met a Satanist or where they, you know what I mean? Like, was that, was that fear present, I guess? Or was it, was it more of an abstract fear? Was it more like the devil is out there? This can happen. Yeah. I don't like, I don't specifically remember anything like that. It was very abstract. And I, like I said, very focused on uh, the end time stuff, the mm. book of revelations and, you know, the 
the whole world's going to hell. Yeah. And like this inevitable, like we're all screwed kind of mentality, which was so terrifying. I can imagine. But at the same time, like, you know, like my mom seeing stuff and like everybody like believing in that, it was still like a very present, like, yeah, you could totally get possessed kind of fear. But I don't think we had any like specific stories, but we did definitely have like you've seen. I'm sure you've seen like the 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 TV shows where like the preachers having people come up and they're speaking in tongues and like they pass out. And oh, yeah, like that was a normal Sunday, (laughs) right? A regular occurrence, (laughs) like, you know, people getting really into like singing the gospels and like speaking in tongues and um like even as young as i was like at 10 and 11 and stuff like that like feeling the pressure like if i'm like don't figure out how the heck to do whatever the heck they're doing then i must be like unworthy or right, too sinful or something <laughs> we you know it's funny we had um when I was a kid, we had a, we had a, uh, like a, I guess like a charismatic preacher kind of thing come through Staten Island once. I'm trying to remember if this is like, was it Staten Island or was it in Jersey or something like that, whatever. But I remember we, I remember we had a friend that went and got like the parents got super into it. Right. Mm-hmm. And my mom was just like, well, we're not going to hang out with them anymore. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I I can't remember ex- the exact. I think it was my mom. I don't think it was my dad. I just remember, like, we had a friend who was, like, pretty normal and cool and whatever. We'd visit sometimes. And then suddenly it was like them and their kids were super religious. And it was just like, this is not going to work for us. It's like you this switch, this like, when they find that, I guess, gospel or whatever that, like, speaks to them is like the switch and their, like, entire life changes. Yeah, abs- well, Absolutely. You know, oh, man, it's so fascinating. I think had- the coolest story that, um, I guess, where my mom's, like, and belief that she had back then, like, came from, like, I think she grew up in a very similar kind of household where, like, everything was just accepted. Uh-huh. Because I, I, the coolest story that she has um, about being a kid and, like, spiritual things happening is, like, she legitimately believed that they lived like in the neighborhood with a witch. <laughs> like she has this story about being a little girl and um, this guy walking down the street and she's like at the, the, the lady who she thought was a witch's house. Um, uh-huh. And I'm not sure if it was a family member or like just a person that lived in the neighborhood, uh, uh-huh. but she was at her house and there was this guy walking down the street and the lady said something like, like, I hope him and his dog, like, break a leg or something because they're bad people. And they did. Oh, man. <laughs> and oh, so, no. like, that was her confirmation. Right. No, I mean, hell, that's pretty good. I mean, really, as far as witch stories go, that's not terrible confirmation. Like, <laughs> right, you, like can, <laughs> you can see how a kid would be like, oh, she did it. <laughs> Damn. We actually had, so we had in our town... We had stories about a satanic cult, supposedly, that would go into the woods and, like, um, you know, sacrifice animals or whatever. Yeah. 
And I remember being a kid and like, I remember my dad telling me like, oh, there have been some stories about kids in these woods, you know, uh, drawing pentagrams and lighting fires and killing stuff. Right. I remember that very distinctly. My dad telling me that in the car one night, my dad was a security guard. And oh, I remember wow. we were driving and he was like, yeah, this, these are the woods where the Satanists go and they do this, whatever. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember being like 13 and being like, damn, that's scary. You know, like at that point I didn't really believe anymore too hard. Right. But still like, even to this day, you, you get a book, you know, black magic or whatever and you read it you're you know in the back of your head you got that you still got that little priest from when you were growing up being like is this, this is a little dark you know right. <laughs> you're like no i don't think i think maybe like i guess time period wise it, like in my town yeah. um there maybe there would have been stories like that but um figure out exactly where i'm from because um at that time and when I was a kid, we actually had a very high publicity murder case in our town. Um, and so people were very distracted by that. Sure. Absolutely. So you didn't have to make yeah. up, you know, rumors or be scared about a cult in the woods because, um, I mean, a quick Google place, um, you guys, like anybody can find it. It's the Lisa Allison murder. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, there was, um, Super small town, small town girl, great family, goes off to college, comes back home, is found in the river, dead and murdered. Wow. So um, there there was, you know, it's been on the TV show, like the small town murder on A&E and all of that stuff. Like it was mm. a pretty big deal in the 90s. So the whole community was like actually shaken up by crazy murderer guy um versus you know having to even though we had like in my family we had that whole spiritual fear or whatever the town itself had this very real my children aren't safe (laughs) right this thing that actually happened dang well listen des thanks so much for coming on it was a good episode i had a lot of fun Absolutely. I can't wait for it to come out. And I can't wait to get into the Satanic Panic Part 2 as our final demon series here for Halloween. It's going to be scary as heck. Maybe scary as hell if you're a adventurous sort, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> or if you like puns. Uh, or if you like puns. Yeah, it's good stuff. And uh, that's it for this episode. So thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. 
Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.